the bond between mother and infant or between primary caregiver and child is so vital for mammals. And yet, humans routinely separate infants, children from their parents, either for research purposes or in the course of everyday animal exploitation. And this is also something that humans do to each other on purpose um, as part of cultural genocide or other forms of violence. And so our topic today is attachment. And with us today is Catherine Rowe, who is working to end some of the most horrific kinds of animal exploitation, experimentation um, involving the separation of monkeys from their mothers. You're listening to In Context, which is coming to you from the Grounds of Vine Sanctuary. And we always start with a shout out to a sanctuary resident who we will then keep in mind throughout the episode. And the person I am thinking of is a cow called Maddox, who came to us as a four-day-old calf after being taken from his mother at a dairy. When he came to us, we swore that we wouldn't forget his mother, still back there on the dairy, as charmed as we were by him. Although I need to tell you, he was mad. He was furious. He was so sad, but you could also see that he was mad, which made his name Maddox make sense. Um, and when he stared at you, you could just see in his eyes the question, where's my mommy? Luckily, we were able to keep track of his mother. And when the dairy was ready to let her go three years later, we were able to reunite them. And even though it had been three years, and even though they hadn't seen each other since then, and even though he was now a giant cow with horns, they recognized each other right away. And the moment when they touched noses again was absolutely one of the most beautiful moments in, in our sanctuary's history. And then they spent all kind of time together. They were inseparable for about six months. And then even after that, Maddox, despite the fact that he was a young adult who liked to hang with his friends, always spent some time with Moxie uh, until her death a few years ago. So that's who's going to be on my mind as I talk with our guest, Catherine Rowe of PETA. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, one of the things that we notice at the sanctuary is that the few non-human residents who actually were raised by their mothers rather than being separated from their mothers at or shortly after birth, as so many animals are, not just cows at dairy farms and not just monkeys in experiments, but, you know, even uh, folk companion animals are routinely separated uh, from their siblings and, and, and their parents. Um, but what we've noticed is that those who have had the extreme good luck to be nurtured and raised by their parent, usually their mother, have a kind of um, self-confidence um, 
or self-possession or groundedness. It's really hard to put, put, put to words, but, but there's something really strikingly more healthy um, psychologically about them than others. And, and so I wondered if you could begin by telling us, like, why is that? Well, I think I'm not surprised at all to hear this because we know from data from all manner of species that the that it is very important for infants and their uh, parents to stay together. Now, you know how long the parent-child uh, relationship needs to be in place varies. You know, for some species, it's 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 shorter than say for humans or other primates, but that original parent-child interaction is key for emotional health, for physical health, for psychological health. And when that is disrupted for any reason, you often see long-term and short-term effects. You can see behavioral problems, you can see health problems, and some of those extend throughout your lifetime. So we know that humans who are separated from their parents early on in childhood will sometimes have health effects long you know, after childhood into adulthood. It's a, a critically important um, relationship to keep intact. And as you said, we tend not to bother, you know, for, for our own reasons, humans are all too willing to separate other species, infants and mothers, you know, whether it's for food or for experimentation, which is, you know, an area that I work in, we give very little regard to parent-child relationships if they're not our own. And I think it's important for people to, to realize that in the same way that you have an attachment to your mother or your child or your caregiver, that's true for all other species. And disrupting that is, is unethical. And it also impacts any, any number of things in, in the world. And we need to really think about that and, and why we're doing it. And can we avoid doing it if at all possible? You know, as you were just saying unethical, I was thinking, yes, but also know, the word that came to mind was like heartless or unemotional or, but, and yet it's done by people who, who do have attachments, you know, to their own family and, and are not heartless. They have hearts. Uh, uh, and yet there's a, there's a kind of callousness that, 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 you have to develop in order to do this, in order to pull a calf from his mother while he is terrified and she is bellowing with sorrow and rage, um, uh, or separate a human infant mm -hmm. uh, from uh, her mother at the border, as was deliberately done um, and has been deliberately done um, while gearing the anguish on mm -hmm. both sides uh there, there's a way that you have to i presume just not hear or not feel what you're hearing and to me that kind of callousness feels so dangerous i think it's really dangerous and i agree with you i think it's it's almost natural for people to to realize that attachment is important because people have their own attachments and if something like what they were doing to others happened to them, they would feel it. So I think that there is a, a desensitization, a turning off of natural empathy or of necessarily grouping people into a category of other, right? So though though if this happened to me, it would it would hurt me. This group, whether it's a different culture or a different species, 
is different. And it's really a, a method of, of justifying your unethical actions. But in doing that, in turning off your own empathy and turning off your willingness to see the hurt that you're causing to others, that penetrates everything you do. If you're able to stop considering other people or other animals as living, feeling creatures who suffer the way you would in, in various situations, how does that affect the way you behave in general? You know, do you just turn off everybody, you know, go through life, not thinking about what you're doing and how that might harm others. But I think that's what we're seeing. I think people continually justify doing things that they should know is harmful because it allows them to do it. And that can just impact how we treat others in so many other areas, even areas, you know, that we don't realize. You know, we got to, we got to keep those empathy circles open is what I think. You got to think about other people and what you're doing and how it impacts them, other species on the planet. You know, it would make the world a much better place if we could all do it even 50% more than we're doing it now, but all the time would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking, like, this is just bringing me to, uh, my, to, to think about your particular work and the and the, I don't even have a word to describe the awfulness of the fact that psychologists who are interested in attachment devised the kinds of experiments that, that you work to end. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about how this callousness that you have to have to do such a thing, then how in, how in the world could you then go into the world and be a psychologist, uh, be someone who can speak or think clearly about attachment when uh, in the course of studying attachment, what you've done is is something that requires you to to cut off your own ability uh, to uh, be attached to others, to care about others. Yeah, well, and and it's it's interesting that the experiments that you're talking about. I mean, there there are a large number of them, but um, historically, they, these started with an experimenter at the University of Wisconsin Madison named Harry Harlow, who realized that the parent-child bond might be important. And in order to prove that, separated monkeys, baby monkeys, infant rhesus macaques from their mothers and studied their behavior. I think a lot of people, if you've had an introduction to psychology class or you've taken a child development class, will have heard of, of a fraction of these experiments. You'll hear, you know, one of the studies that he did was he gave infant macaques who had been taken away from their mothers the option of spending time on a wire monkey that had a bottle that could feed the monkey or a cloth monkey that offered tactile comfort. And the monkeys preferred the tactile comfort. So they spent more time on the cloth monkey than the wire monkey. And this is the experiment that people hear about, but it went so much deeper. I mean, uh, experiments that he conducted involved putting these babies in what he called a pit of despair. This is basically a sensory deprivation tank. This is a newborn baby monkey put into basically like a like a a, a pit that has no sensory stimulation. They're they're in the dark for up to six months to a year, and then he would see how pathological their behavior was, how 
incapable they were of forming attachments with anyone after, after being deprived of maternal contact, after being deprived of sensory stimulation. And for bioethicists and animal behaviorists, a lot of people look at Harry Harlow's experiments as the worst of the worst. You know, how did this get approved? How could somebody have done this? How could somebody have done this for years? Here's the catch. We're still doing it. You know, Harry Harlow may have been the father of maternal deprivation in monkeys, but, you know, his offspring, if you will, are all around the country. You know, it was only six years ago that PETA and other primatologists and other animal groups uh, stopped one of his students from doing this at the National Institutes of Health. And we learned just a few months ago that this is happening at Harvard. At Harvard Medical School, there's an investigator who is taking babies away from their mothers at birth and performing sensory deprivation experiments on these babies. And these, this includes sewing their eyes shut. This includes forcing them to wear goggles that distort their vision. This includes um, having the, the lab staff who are raising them because they're not being raised by their mothers like they're supposed to uh, wear welding masks. I mean, picture this if you're a newborn baby and, and you, you know, primates in particular are very focused on eye contact and facial expressions. That's a big part of our communication system. They're not getting any of that. So they're, you know, they're blinded, they're deprived of normal visual information, and they are deprived of their mothers. And we know this is bad. And, and somehow this got approved. And so we are really working with, you know, as an organization, PETA as an organization, but also you know, the primatologists and the animal behavior specialists and the bioethicists who all agree this needs to stop. All right. Well, listen, right now I'm having empathy for our listeners and viewers um, because I'm having a hard time even hearing this, even though I already knew it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I imagine that one of the things that's happening is people are feeling, okay, what can I do? I need to do something about this. So let's not wait till the end of the episode to have you tell people how they can get involved in ending these kinds of experiments. Then we'll go on and talk some more. Okay. But but if, if somebody is is just now learning that this is still going on, even though maybe when they took intracyte, someone said, hey, these kinds of experiments would never be approved again. What 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 can people do? Well, the, the fastest and easiest thing people can do is go to PETA.org slash Harvard. And what you can see is we have a lot of information about the experiments themselves, some images from the laboratory, but also very easy actions you can take, primarily contacting the president of Harvard. And, and there's just down at the bottom of this website, you can you know fill out a form and send a letter. But you know, viewers, I mean listeners can also, you know, take their own action. You know, we, we love having people use the PETA website to, to do it because it makes it easier for people to find the right contacts and it, it just makes it straightforward. But you can call Harvard yourself. You can email Harvard yourself and say, I've, I've learned about these maternal deprivation and sensory deprivation experiments. What are you doing? You know, I, I, this is not something that I would want to participate in. This is not something that's going to benefit human health, which is, you know, what we often hear when we hear about the monstrosities that happen inside laboratories is the public gets outraged as they should when they hear what's happening to the animals. But then they also hear, well, this, you know, this could somehow cure Alzheimer's disease or cancer or, or, you know, develop a new vaccine for whatever the new 
diseases. And this is just not the case. You know, these are these are curiosity-driven experiments. This, the person doing this at Harvard is interested in how early visual information affects visual development. And the fact that she has to take these babies away from their mothers in order to induce the sensory deprivation, you know, these goggles or the stitching of the eyes, I don't think she's given it a moment's thought. I think it's just a logistical procedure. You know, she can't, you know, suture baby's eyes because their mother will take them out. Can't, you know, put goggles on a baby because the mother will take them off. I don't think she's given a moment's thought to how negatively impacted these baby monkeys are just from being taken away from their mothers. Um, I, Because your listeners are so empathetic already, I, I hate to, you know, I, I always worry that, you know, I don't want to traumatize anybody. I don't want to give somebody secondary trauma, but we know that one of the babies in this lab, when, when trying to interact with the surrogate. So, so one thing that happens in these labs, when the babies are taken away from their mothers is they're given what's called a surrogate mother. You know, and this is like what Harry Harlow did where he had a wire mother and a cloth mother. They give them a piece of cloth, you know, that they can hang on to because they're desperate for any kind of tactile comfort. They're in a cage alone and they can't see properly. You can imagine how terrifying that would be for anybody, let alone an infant monkey. And one of these babies strangled to death on this cloth surrogate, because again, it's not a mother. You know, they're left alone with fake maternal comfort. And in, you know, in a desperate move to get as close to this, this surrogate as possible, the baby got tangled and strangled to death. She was found dead. I mean, this is what happens in these labs and people don't realize it, you know? People see pictures of, you know, you hear a, a news story, right? About a new discovery. Oh, we just learned that, you know, monkeys who don't have, don't see faces develop face processing. And you'll see a picture of a monkey in the wild. They won't put a picture of a monkey with their eyes sewn shut in a cage, but that's what it is. And I think it's so important for people to think about, especially in the realm of science, because people tend to give science exploitation of animals a pass. You know, they think it's somehow for the greater good, right? Like, you know, I can say for myself that I had become vegetarian and then vegan and then stopped going to anything, you know, like a, a circus with elephants or, or an aquarium or anything that, that exploited animals. But I always gave research a pass because I, I thought that it was ethical. I thought that it was beneficial. And I think that the general public always thinks that, well, you know, it sounds bad, but it's for science. You know, it's it's not abuse for abuse's sake. It's abuse for science. But what goes on in these labs is as harmful as anything that you you could see, you know, in a zoo, in a in a in a roadside zoo, in a circus, on a factory farm. The suffering the animals are are feeling is the same. And quite frankly, the science isn't that good. I mean, think about you know, you talked about, you talked about Maddox and you talked about other animals at the sanctuary who you could tell are healthier when they were raised with their mothers. All of the animals in these laboratories who are maternally separated are unhealthy. This impacts the data, right? So in addition to being unethical, it's unscientific because their their stress systems, their behavioral systems, their neurological systems, their immunological systems are all 
altered by the fact that they have been taken away from their mothers and are experiencing maternal deprivation stress. So the data is useless. So we're just harming them for, for, for what? To get a paper and a journal? That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. You said earlier, people don't know. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's true. And and so I want to, uh, 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 for folks who are tuning in and thinking, well, what can I do? Uh, in addition to helping to intervene in this particular study at Harvard, I want to say, if you're at any sort of a, a university uh, that does research or that has a psychology department or a neuropsychology department, uh, uh there may be experiments going on at your school that you don't know about. Uh, just recently, United Poultry Concerns became aware of some uh, experiments uh, involving how to kill chickens uh, at, at a university uh, where uh, the campus newspaper then turned down an ad that would have told students uh, that these experiments are happening at their school. So we most students don't know yep. uh, that these these are happening at their school. So if you're in school or if you live in a college town, you know one of the best things that you can do is try to try to find out if there is already a student animal rights group or some local group that is intervening in, in research in your school. And if not, well, that's an area. Uh, that where you can help by just trying to figure out, find out what's happening at your school, and then and then whether it is your local grassroots animal rights group or one of the national organizations like mm -hmm. PETA reaching out for support in figuring out what you can do uh, to make sure that everybody in your community knows what's going on um, and knows how to weigh in on whether or not you want that to be happening in your community. Right now, especially when it comes to animals being used for experimentation, it's the the younger people who are really going to make the difference because I think there's a greater awareness of harms being caused to animals and, and a, a greater concern for animals than there ever has been. But also, as you said, if you're at a university and they're doing these sorts of experiments, your voice matters more than mine. So me coming to Harvard and saying, I, you know, I am a neuroscientist, I have a background here, and I disagree with what you're doing. They care less that that I'm upset with them than they do that their own student body is upset. And and you know, it it is the reputation of your university, but it it's also your voice can carry a lot of weight. Students who who say to university officials, you know, I'm happy to be here. I love my college. I love my university, but I don't approve of this makes a huge difference. And as you said, a lot of universities and colleges try to keep their animal experimentation programs as quiet as possible. You know, when we try to, we have this problem as well, when we try to put ads in a newspaper, just letting students know this is happening on your campus, the paper's often say we can't run this, you know, this is not something we can accept. Um, so yeah, asking questions, asking questions in your classroom, right? Because you, if you're in a, on a science track at all, if you're taking a, a biology class or a psychology class, or um, you're going to hear about animal experiments and you're going to hear a very sanitized version your textbook will have a line drawing, right? It won't show, you know, everybody knows the Pavlov's dog experiments, right? Where, where Pavlov trained 
his dog to salivate at the sound of a bell because he repeatedly paired the bell with food. And in your textbook, you'll see like a line drawing of a dog and a, and a, and a bowl, a food bowl. The pictures from those actual experiments are, are cringeworthy because, you know, he didn't, there are apparatus surgically implanted into the salivary glands of the dogs to, to measure the saliva. You know, the dog is standing on a table chained to the table. It's not this cute little, you know, where you're playing with your dog, it, but that's what you get shown in a textbook. And that's true for all of these experiments. They'll never show you how invasive it really is. They also tend not to show you how difficult it is to translate data from animals to humans. Because while we, we share so many of the, the emotional and cognitive behaviors, our physiology is different. And what we see in drug development is like a 95% failure rate. You know, a drug that tests safe and effective in a mouse or a rat or a monkey or a dog fails 95% of the time in humans. So what you hear in an undergraduate classroom is, you know, one of it, don't worry, the animals are fine, not true. And that it's really important. And, and we're definitely gonna be able to cure a bunch of people of a disease by doing this. Also not true. So students who can just even raise their hand and say, well, has this ever helped anybody? Or how invasive was this really? Cause this little cartoon mouse isn't showing me what it looks like to have, you know, surgical equipment you know, implanted into these animals. And so, you know, asking questions about what's going on at your university, how harmful is it, and and what likelihood is it going to benefit people are, are really important questions that few people ask. And I think I think too, and I, I want to come back to 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 your descriptions in, in a minute, but I, I think too, uh people who live in university towns um, also have a role to play. Whether or not you're a student, uh, universities tend to want to have a, a, a good relationship uh, with their town. Uh, and so if you live in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a university town or you work at a university as a staff member who even if you're not a teacher, you still can play a role. Your union mm -hmm. can play a role. Absolutely, uh, yes. Uh, any, 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 anybody who is in some way related to the university can play a role. But listen, you've been describing some things that are pretty hard to, to hear, um, uh, although obviously not as hard to hear as they are to endure. Um, and, and that re reminds me that your job is one that requires you to think about these kinds of harm all of the time. And I imagine that you are looking at videos and images or detailed descriptions that uh, would give people nightmares and may well give you nightmares. And so I guess I'm just wondering how, well, one, I'm very grateful to you and anyone uh, who works uh, in this realm and who uh, exposes themselves emotionally in order to do this work? Um, but I'd really like to know how do you how do you take care of yourself? Uh, how do you how do you survive this yourself? Um, working with people who also do it all day and and sometimes just venting, being able to say can can you listen to me for a second because i'm so upset about something i just read or something i just saw 
helps, but also being active in trying to end animal experimentation can be helpful. You know, um, working with people at PETA, people outside PETA who care, who are willing to speak up, taking some comfort in the fact that I'm not alone and that there are people all around the world doing this work, whether it's developing new methodologies that we can replace animals with, to speaking out at their universities, at their own laboratories. You know, that takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of bravery to go against the norm and say, you know what, I know we've done this this way for hundreds of years, but I don't think we should anymore. Um, having uh, opportunities to help animals directly, and that is, you know, includes, of course, adopting animals, but I work, PETA has a 24-hour uh, pager, so people can call at any time of day or night with an animal emergency, and that can be anything from I've found an injured bird to a possum who has been hit by a car or a turtle and they need medical attention and it's three o'clock in the morning. Um, and, and doing that pager, it allows me to help an animal immediately. You know, a lot of the work in for animals in laboratories is, is the long game. You know, it's getting policy changed. It's getting new methods adapted. It's getting individual laboratories to stop doing, you know, maternal separation on monkeys or, or the forced swim test for depression. Um, but it's long-term. So having another outlet where I can have an immediate benefit for an animal in distress does help. It's, you know, it does help. And so having having those opportunities to help animals directly while working with a bunch of really dedicated people on long-term changes that will help animals in the long run. Hey, I really want to highlight that what you just said, both to both of those things, uh, the 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 having a community of people who uh, not only work together, but can talk to each other about their feelings and take care of each other as needed, rather than like demanding that each other power through without yes. feeling anything is super important. And I've also found it so useful throughout my life, whatever of of subject that uh, or problem I've been working on to make sure that I include in my own portfolio of things I do at least one thing that for sure is going to help somebody right now. Mm -hmm. um, even as I'm playing the long game and working these long-term strategies that, you know, if we're honest, you never know. Right. whether the long-term strategy is is going to do what you hope it does. But if you can work in some direct action of some kind, uh, then uh, then you can go into that long-term work mm -hmm. buoyed with the feeling of, of having helped somebody uh, concretely and immediately. So yeah. I, I'm really glad uh, that you said that. Yeah. And, and, and I want to uh, reiterate my gratitude to you and to everybody. Uh, who works um, on vivisection uh, for putting yourselves through what I know you must go through uh, in, in order to, to do your work. Well, thank you. And and the same is for everybody in this space, right? You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the fact that we have empathy enough to dedicate our lives to trying to educate people and trying to help animals is a blessing to ourselves because I'm glad that I'm empathetic, but also means that, you know, we're all we're all feeling a lot of pain because we can't look away, right? I mean, that's who we are. Right. And yeah. the looking away is a problem. Mm -hmm. And 
So anybody who doesn't look away uh, is is doing something important, I think. Um, and I, well, I've been thinking so many other things when you were talking. I was thinking, I mean, we've been talking mostly about mammals, uh, but I've been thinking about all the chicks uh, who get hatched uh, in machines mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they're not all alone, but they're just with other newly hatched chicks, none of whom uh, knows what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, or is capable of sheltering them under a wing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and when you were saying, hey, the data is bad, mm-hmm. uh, I was thinking, well, yeah, and, and, and so many things we think we know about this or that animal uh, uh, that's based on the behavior of animals who were hatched in hatcheries mm-hmm. or 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 raised in captivity in in some other way mm-hmm. uh, with or without maternal deprivation mm-hmm. um it's all false 100% and again the data that we have about this the, the hard data is it's it's not just their behavior it's their physiology you know it's it's their immune systems don't work you know, their, their brains develop differently. You know, you see it in the behavior because that's, you know, the most accessible um, measurement we have, but it's everywhere. And again, this, this notion that you can just take babies away from their mothers, whether they're chickens or cows or mice and rats or monkeys or, or newborn puppies is, is so arrogant, Mm. you know, to, to think, well, I know that I wouldn't like this. And and I think every human has some awareness of, of human parent-child interactions. You know, we, we, we do tend to be empathetic towards mothers who have lost their children or children who have lost their parents. But the idea that other species don't have those same needs, that the negative effects of, of breaking that critical early bond is different simply because they're not human is, is human arrogance. And the data shows this, and yet we do it in in so many areas of of our animal exploitation. You know, step one. I mean, this is really where it starts, right? The first thing we do before we start using quote unquote our animals for our own gain is take babies away from their mothers. I mean, it's the first step in a in a lifetime of of harm that we're willing to inflict, right? And and so and, and hidden. It means that hidden within, like hidden within every form of animal exploitation is first of all the exploitation of the uh, uh, the animals who were used to breed mm-hmm. uh, exploitation of the mothers exploitation of their fathers in one way or another um is 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 just built in and not talked about um and and then we base all sorts of uh, I, I'm thinking right now about roosters. Uh, used in cockfighting uh, because they are, you know, raised in isolation and kept in a constant state of hunger and frustration mm-hmm. um, and uh, deprived of not only instruction from their mother, but instruction within a flock where they would mm-hmm. learn from elder roosters uh, the methods by which roosters keep the peace among right. each other. Um, and then their, their, the, their behavior, the behavior of this now adult rooster who, uh, 
who knows what is happening physiologically or psychologically as a result of all of this social deprivation uh, is, is then thrown into a cockpit and then his behavior is read as this is natural. Mm -hmm. behavior and and this shows us that that not only roosters but males in general are inherently aggressive and you know we should accept uh that that's uh that that's true masculinity it's just it's so entangled uh in everything this 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 separation of the of the of the the baby child Mm -hmm. youth from mother caregiver mm-hmm. exactly whatever pod you know yeah. and the the entanglement is is real you know you think about we know this when we talk about humans right we know that there are sensitive periods or critical periods for learning social norms for learning language which you know human language we know is much easier when you're when you're young but all of the rules of social behavior i think even people who adopt dogs are are aware now that when you socialize you know early socialization for your for your adopted dog so they learn all the social cues from other dogs about you know how to play and how to stop play when it gets too rough and and learning what the different eye contact and body language means has to happen early right there's a there's a such an important period especially with mammals, you know, um, sort of built in, or it's supposed to be built in, right? That you're in close contact with another member of your species for feeding purposes, but it's so much more than that. It's it's behavioral and social learning. And when that is removed, it's very hard to learn those things later. Even if you're put into a enriched environment later, you know, you're rescued from whatever whatever conditions you were in early on. That damage is done. And sometimes that damage is on purpose. Like that's, I think like a lot of of what we've been talking about is the separation is done in Mm -hmm. order to do something else. Mm -hmm. And then just pretend that the separation doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. But like in the case of roosters, uh, well, they do it that way because otherwise they won't fight. Right. Um, And, and humans have done this on purpose. Mm -hmm. Uh, to each other, like here in the United States, there's the history of 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 of, of removing uh, native children from their families and and sending them to so-called boarding schools, which were really children's prisons, uh, specifically in order to break that family bond and make cultural genocide easier. And then, right. as, as we said earlier. This is still happening at the border, yes. Uh, uh, the southern border of the United States, the deliberate separation mm-hmm. of 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 children from from their parents uh, in order to induce harm, right? And then complain about the harm later on, right? Induce the harm and then and then complain about it later on is is was but like you said, we know. So it's this is not based in in ignorance. This is based in in a in a full awareness that this harm has long term effects, and yet we're doing it anyway, and it's it's really terrifying. And again, you know, doing it in context A makes it easier to do it in context B, makes it easier to do it in context C, to the point where it's everywhere, and you're no longer talking about it. And we can't allow that. You know, we have to keep pushing these conversations. We have to keep pointing out 
the harms in whatever context for whatever species, right? Well, I don't know whether you just deliberately repeated the name of the of the show so many times, <laughs> but I think that this is the point, right? Yeah. In these the, the context in which things happen matter. We have to understand these things in context. Mm -hmm. And a theme of this show has been you know, trying to understand the relationships among various problems, but also understanding the webs of relationships in which all of us exist and do our work, mm -hmm. uh, including the, the, the web of, 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 of biospheres, the, the, the web of relationships that makes our very existence possible. Um, and I think attachment whether it's mother infant attachment or attachments with siblings mm -hmm. like attachments are part of those networks that make us possible yes um and so this is why i find um uh these particular kinds of experience immense particularly onerous harmful mm -hmm. objectionable and uh, and why I'm so grateful to you and to anyone who works to shine a light on them mm -hmm. and to help restore those attachments and 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 get people to quit breaking those attachments. Yes. So I wanna I want you to say one more time, how can people get involved if they wanna um, if they wanna uh, help stop these experiments at Harvard? Absolutely, you can go to peta.org/harvard. Um, which is a web page that has a lot of information about what's actually happening, but also at the bottom has an easy uh, way for you to take action, but contacting Harvard administrators and saying, no, you know, this is not, this is unacceptable. Um, and if you're a U.S. taxpayer, you're paying for this. So it's, it's just, a, it's a layered problem, right? In addition to the harms that are causing the animals, in addition to the cost, right? This is something that, this is this is money that's earmarked to benefit human health, and yet we're using it to do these cruel curiosity experiments at Harvard. So this these are resources that could be put into something else. Um, and so it's, it's just a multi-layered problematic series of experiments, but uh, PETA.org slash Harvard, um, really easy way for you to take action. And certainly you can you can contact me at PETA directly if you have other questions or ideas. Um, we're, we're always interested. Uh, you can contact Harvard on your own if you don't want to go through the website. But, you know, put them on notice. They've been getting away with this for a while. It's only recently we learned it was even happening. And people are outraged, you know, not just animal advocates, but, you know, uh, scientists. Can't believe this is this has been allowed. And so I, I think we have a real good shot at getting Harvard to end it, but we we need as many as many voices as we can speaking out against it. So so please. And I, I love that you just said that it's multi-layered, right? Mm -hmm. That it, and and we've talked about so many of the layers here. So there's the financial layer and there's the academic layer of wanting publications, and then there's the um uh, the there's so many different layers which reminds me that there are so many ways that people can help. It's a little bit of a side message, but I know that there are people out there right now who are being pressured to do something harmful to an animal to get their degree and they don't need to. And so 
You don't need to believe what you're being told at your college or university. There are people out here like me who, who will help you find your path, your harm-free path. And so please reach out for that as well as, you know, ending something like what's happening at Harvard, because both of those things need to happen. Thank you so much for that. And I, one thing that people can do is just share this conversation. Uh, with anybody you know who might be interested, if you are tuned in on Unchained TV, send somebody else to watch it. If you're tuned in on YouTube, like, comment, and share. If you are listening in on a podcast, make sure you subscribe, but also think right now of one person you know who might want to listen in and make sure they know about it. You can go to vinesanctuary.org and look for the In Context page to find show notes and all the back episodes on In Context. I want to thank Catherine Rowe of PETA for joining us today and for all of her work. And I want to thank you, everyone who is tuning in, for anything that you are going to do to not only end these kinds of experiments, but restore our attachments uh, to each other and to the larger than human world and help other people to understand how important the webs of relationships, including mother, child, parent, child, caregiver, child attachments are. You've been listening to In Context. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.